Hey, well, good morning, everybody. My name is Prentice. Uh, for those I have yet to meet, I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle with an incredible staff. And uh, whether you're joining us here in person or online, or maybe you're going to be watching sometime this week, uh, we're just glad that you uh, are joining us one way or another. Uh, and so as we talked about last week, this week, uh, I'm really excited to start a new sermon series uh, on 1 John. We're just going to be studying 1 John. It's short. Uh, it, well, we'll be studying all the letters of John. Uh, and really the whole idea of this series is loving God and loving others. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you might say, okay, that's really elementary, Prentice. That's, I've heard that before. And, and my response to that would be, exactly. Uh, the whole idea behind this sermon series is that for so long... Uh, and often, and I do this too, that we have overcomplicated our faith. We've overcomplicated what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And at some point, we have to recognize that and say, look, what are the essentials? What is the simplicity of the gospel? Now, remember, the idea of simplicity isn't the same as being lackadaisical about it or not taking it seriously. But it's really unraveling all the layers and saying, at the root of our faith, what, what is it? And, and really what John is saying is, it's this. It's we love others, we love God. That's the gospel. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so uh, with that said, I'm going to read our uh, passage in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, through five. And what I also fail to mention is that this Sunday, today, is Lunar New Year's. And so for those of you that celebrate, uh, in my family as well, uh, celebrate Lunar New Year. Happy New Year to you, the year of the rabbit. And so uh, if that means anything to you, Happy New Year's to you. May you be blessed uh, and experience God's fullness this year. So 1 John chapter 1 says this, in which was from the beginning, okay, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the, and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God, thank you that you are light. And in you, there is no darkness. And we thank you that we can experience that light of love, of compassion, of empathy. And may we just remember that in any moment that we fail to live in that light, you forgive us and you bring us back. May we come back to the simplicity of your love, of your calling in our lives, simply to love you and to love others. So often we forget how to do that. And as a consequence, we just hurt others. 
and we hurt your message. Forgive us and guide us and help us to be better. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Uh, well, last Thursday uh, night or afternoon, my, my wife Maria and I, we, we flew down to California, to Los Angeles, uh, to celebrate a friend's baby shower. And we got back late last night around midnight. Uh, but it was an incredible time. And one of my favorite parts uh, of going down there was to show Maria a little bit of my old stomping ground, which is in Pasadena uh, at a place called Fuller Theological Seminary where I studied and received my Master's of Divinity there. And it was just a really special place for me. And so I was able to take Maria and kind of show her around. And I think we've been there before, but it's always exciting to me to show her a little bit uh, of my past life and, and the formative years of uh, me and my calling, of my faith. Uh, it, but as I was walking throughout the seminary, I was, uh, I was recalling a conversation that I had with one of the pastors of a church that I was interning for before I moved to, to Los Angeles, to Pasadena for seminary. And I remember going up to that pastor uh, and saying out of excitement, hey, hey, guess what, pastor? I'm going to be going to Fuller Theological Seminary in the fall. And really, it was to follow his footsteps uh, to study and to fulfill my calling as a pastor. And, and my initial thought was, okay, he's going to be so excited that I'm going to be essentially following his footstep to go to this institution to learn and grow and to be formed in faith. And, and I remember saying, hey, you know, this is what I'm going to be doing. And I'll never forget his response. His response was to me, you know what they say about seminary, right? Like, you know what the nickname is. And I said, no, I don't know. Well, what is it? And he said, the nickname for seminary, and for those of you that don't know seminary, it's a place where pastors and, and missionaries and leaders, Bible scholars, they go to learn about the Bible, and they had a good degree in that, and so that's what seminary is. Uh, and he said that the, the nickname for seminary is cemetery. It's cemetery. And I thought, well, that's strange. Why would it be cemetery? And he says, seminary is, go is where one's faith goes to die. And I was a little bit discouraged. And I thought, what, what do you mean by that? And he says, a lot of people will go to seminary and learn and grow and study the Bible and learn theologies and different worldviews and meet different people that practice faith differently. And things start to change and you start to question things and you start to doubt things. And, and I didn't know what he meant until I got there. And I remember my first day. I was living in uh, campus housing, and I was paired with a roommate uh, that was also a student that I've never met before. And I remember that first week, we, you know, went grocery shopping, and, you know, we're filling our fridge for the week. And I couldn't help but to notice in our cart, he put a six-pack of an adult beverage. And my background was coming from a Baptist background. And I thought, what is he doing? And I'm not going to lie, I was a little feeling a little judgy there. And as we got home and we were talking about that, I was like, hey, I noticed you were buying some drinks. And he's like, yeah, you know, just to unwind or just, you know, for dinner or whatever. And I was like, okay, that's, that sounds fair. And then later I found out 
why he would do that. He told me he came from a Presbyterian background. And I thought, those Presbyterians can get away with anything. (laughs) And I remember immediately, like, things were going to be different. People lived out their faith differently. I was going to class, and I was learning theological perspectives that I have never learned before. And sadly to say, this was for a lot of people, and I've witnessed personally firsthand friends who have actually left the faith after seminary or even not even graduating and investing so much money and so much time. And I catch up with them, you know, not all of them, but some of them, and they will say that they are no longer Christians. Sadly, I've known people where one spouse, a married couple, where one spouse goes to seminary as one person, and they would declare that they're leaving as another person because of all the things that they've learned and unlearned and relearned, that the person that they've married was no longer the same person, and they end up splitting up. I've known people that have gone to seminary and to learn about faith where they leave with, uh, at best, a sense of skepticism. And I would say this is where I landed. And it's a type of skepticism that isn't actually healthy. I do think there's a sense of doubt and, and, and questioning and skepticism that is healthy. That's actually a prerequisite to a genuine faith. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a particular type of skepticism that leads to anger and, and doubt in a faithlessness rather than a faithfulness. Uh, and, and for me, I remember it took years and years where I can sit uh, and listen to a preacher's preach a sermon without me internally dissecting the whole thing because of my own skepticism. Now, again, I have fond memories of my experience at Fuller, and I was really excited to share that with with Maria uh, last weekend. I'm grateful for the opportunity to have learned. But for many of us that attended and, and studied there, many of us were learning so much about the scriptures about theological perspectives, different worldviews, that our hearts can keep up with our minds. You see, in many ways, and this is what today is about, we've overly complicated our faith. And I've learned that in doing so, when oftentimes when we overcomplicate our faith, it becomes the quickest way to lead to a sense of spiritual decay. Now, again, you don't have to have gone to seminary to have experienced this. We do this often. We overcomplicate our faith with even nowadays with our tribes and our, and our politics. I recently heard people say something like, you know, Prince, I think it's impossible for one to claim that they're a Christian and to claim that they're a fill-in-the-blank, Republican, or uh, I think it's impossible for people to claim that they're a Christian and declare that they're a Democrat, or, or uh, claim that they're a Christian and, and you fill in the blank. Because what we've, many of us, what we've done is we've infused and complicated our faith with politics and the stuff that we see in the news and our own tribes and our own groups and our own echo chambers that our faith has been overly complicated with our, even our own biases. We've overcomplicated our faith even with faith and, and, and theology, where, you know, maybe it's the conversations that I've had, but I, I've seen people argue 
uh, to no ends about particular theological perspectives. Is there predestination? Is there free will? Uh, women in ministry, is that good or is that bad? Or, you know, sexuality. And there's so many things that I've seen people just debate, debate, debate as if we're going to figure it all out here in our lives. And sadly, I've seen churches split up. The fact that there's even different denominations, and I think there's a beauty in that, that there's a diversity of churches. But it's sad also to think that those often, many of those denominations came because of theological disagreements and arguments and debates. We've overcomplicated our faith with, with just an endless amount of questions, and that's me. Uh, I, I view faith through a very cerebral lens. And I don't necessarily feel bad about that because I love learning and I love studying, but oftentimes that gets in the way of a genuine faith that is required to follow after Christ. And at the heart of it is that instead of allowing God's Spirit to form us, we are attempting to form God through our complications of politics, of theology, of our questions, or you fill in the blank. We're trying to fit an infinite God into our finite understanding, into our finite boxes of intellect. And this is precisely why John, the apostle, wrote, these, wrote the epistles or, or these letters to the church. And so as we start, I, I, I want to give a little bit of a background on the letters of John. First, to no surprise, it was written by a man named John. And it was John the Beloved, not John the Baptist that we see in the Gospels. And it was written in the late first century, probably right around 85 to 90 A.D., depending on uh, which theologian you ask. Uh, and it's a letter to the churches, several churches, in Ephesus. And Ephesus is modern-day Turkey. And I just want to go to a next slide before we go back to show you where Ephesus is. If you notice, Ephesus is essentially in the dead center of the Mediterranean, where there was Asia Minor, and then to the east there was um, uh, Palestine, and it was essentially the known world. And Ephesus was a port city dead smack in the middle of the Mediterranean where there was uh, a hotbed of commerce, of city life. I mean, if you want to uh, have a modern-day equivalence, it was like the London of the world. There was so much diversity and people coming together. And so if we go back to the previous slide... It was to the churches of Ephesus that had different ideas and thoughts and perspectives because of the diversity of backgrounds that came into that melting pot. And thirdly, uh, it was written, John wrote this, uh, to address two, and we'll unpack this a little bit, to two prominent heresies or, or false teachings that came through the diversity of people coming from all different walks of life in different worlds. And, and the two main heresies that came was, number one, Gnosticism, and secondly, Orthodoxy. Gnosticism and Orthodoxy, and just a quick note on both. First, Gnosticism was essentially a Hellenized or, or Greek version of Christianity. Now, a side note that the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, uh, 
in John's letter to correct the audience, what we have to remember, uh, they were Christians. They were, they were uh, professing Christians. It wasn't people that practiced pagan religions or outside religions. John was writing to fellow people that identified as Christians who followed after Jesus. But John was saying, as followers of Jesus, you are more dangerous than the people that are pagans bringing in false religions into the world. Your teachings, your subtle deviations of the gospel and the overcomplications of the gospel is actually more dangerous than what we're hearing from the outside world. And so that's just a little bit of a, uh, of a precursor to what's happening. And so the first kind of false teaching that the Christians were bringing in was a Hellenized version of Christianity called Gnosticism. Now, Gnostics believed that the physical and the spiritual, this dualism, was real. It's very different. And the goal of Gnosticism is to escape our physical bodies because anything physical is considered bad and evil. And the goal is for the spirit to leave the physical body and enter into heaven as spirits. And to know this, so the word Gnosticism comes from the word Gnostic, and the word Gnostic is the word knowledge. And to understand the idea that our job, our goal is to leave our physical bodies into a spiritual realm, that was the goal. That means that we were enlightened. Uh, and this was a false teaching because what that leads to uh, is, again, I'll, I'll throw out this other word called uh, docetism. And the word docet just in the Greek just means to seem, to seem like. And, and so what Gnosticism ends up leading to is this view of Jesus. Now, the, the, the question would be, if I believe in Jesus... Uh, to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, sent by God, and I believe in Gnosticism, which was prevalent throughout the time, which meant that the physical body was bad. How can I reconcile this? How can I reconcile the fact that Jesus is a human body in physical form and supposed to be God? That doesn't fit the mold of what I believe. And so what they would end up believing is a sense of docetism, which says that Jesus was actually seemingly a human being, but really wasn't. Essentially that Jesus' actual body, Jesus walking around on earth, was seemingly that, but in actuality, Jesus was like a ghost. And it sounds ridiculous or strange to us today, but that was the way that they, were, they would recognize their Greek background. They're bringing in their Greek experience uh, of what they learned under Plato and Aristotle and other Greek philosophers, that, that our physical bodies were bad and our spiritual body or our spirit inside was, was good, and our job was to leave our physical bodies. And so, of course, if you bring in that experience and that that history of learning, you're going to look at Jesus and have a really difficult time believing that Jesus is actually God and Messiah and a human body. And so the only explanation was docetism, that Jesus was actually just a ghost walking around. And really, the whole idea was the overcomplication of Jesus's humanity, 
And, and some scholars would say the problem with the Gnostics was that they elevated Jesus' uh, divinity a little bit too high, so high that they forgot uh, about his humanity, that Jesus wasn't human at all, that Jesus was only divine and only God. And now the other uh, false teaching or heresy that, that John was noting or pushing back on was orthodoxy. And really, this was a Jewish orthodoxy. Because in one end, we had a group of Hellenized Christians that brought in their Greek understanding of life, of God, of deities. But there was also a melting pot where there was Orthodox Jews coming in. And this was a, uh, a Jewish understanding of Jesus, that they were still waiting for the Messiah, that Jesus was just a human, that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. The Messiah was still coming, that the Messiah was, we were still waiting for the true Messiah to, go, to come. And so there was like two opposite ends of what John was trying to address. One end, there was Gnostics who believed that Jesus was only a spirit, couldn't be a human being, no way. And then there was the Orthodox saying the very opposite. Well, wait a minute. Jesus was only human. There's no way Jesus could be God because Jesus is human. And John comes and writes this letter to Ephesus and saying, look, you are overcomplicating everything. You know what you've heard. Remember, John doesn't need to dissect uh, uh, or give a theological case for who Jesus is because these were already self-proclaiming Christians that were just overcomplicating their understanding of Jesus based on their experience, their history, their learnings, their teachings on different opposite ends of the spectrum. And they were arguing and they were debating. And John had to step in and say, well, wait a minute. Let's go back to the basics. And the basic understanding is this, that Jesus is, both of you are right and both of you are wrong. Jesus is God, fully human and fully divine. And, and then in the rest of the chapter, verse, verses 6 through really the beginning of chapter 2, John tries to uncomplicate things by, by giving three different, what, what, what scholars would call three different clauses. And the clauses look some, sound something like this. Three times he says, if you do this, then the consequences will be that, but you can do this instead. It sounds complicated, but I'll say that one more time. John, to uncomplicate things, gives three clauses. An if clause, if you do this, here are the consequences, but instead live like this. If you're able to do these things, then you are simply loving God and loving others. You are going back to the simplicity of the gospel. John is saying, I know you want to argue about Jesus' divinity. I know over here you disagree about Jesus' humanity. But let's go back to the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus is both divine. Jesus is both and human. And our calling as Christians, both of you, Gnostics, Orthodox, is to simply love God and love others. How do we do this? Well, John says, I'll tell you. First, he says, if we claim to share fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, and here's the consequence, we're lying. We do not live in the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So notice that this is the first set of clauses. He says, if, that's the if clause, we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, here's the consequences. We're just lying. We're lying to ourselves. That's the, here's the consequence. And then the outcome, or, or but, here's another way to live, and it's to walk in the blood of Jesus. Now, this sounds really overly spiritual, doesn't it? But, but John is saying this very specifically. Because what was happening was he's addressing both the Gnostics and the Orthodox. The Gnostics believed, and many of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, we may judge the Gnostics, but we kind of live like the Gnostics. Because here's how they were living. They were saying, look, if the physical is bad, and the spiritual is good, and our job is to leave our physical bodies and to go into heaven with our spirits, then who cares what we do with our bodies? Who cares how we actually live our lives? Who cares how we treat people? Who cares about mistakes that we, that we make? Because I'm going to go to heaven after I die, and that's what matters. That's what the Gnostics believed, because obviously the physical was worthless and the spiritual was everything. And, and so John was saying, look, you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but the way you're living is this. You say you're, you, 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 you're, you believe in Jesus. You say that you're walking in the light. You say all these things, but in reality, you're not. You're not. You claim to share fellowship with Christ, but yet you're walking in darkness. So he's speaking specifically to the Gnostics, because that's what the Gnostics were doing. That's what we believe sometimes, that what we, how we behave, how we act, how we hurt, how we love or don't love. We're, oftentimes, it doesn't match what we say. And that's exactly what was happening with the Gnostics. And then he says, but you should be walking in the blood of Jesus. Now he's talking to the Orthodox. Where the Orthodox Jews, the historicity of the Jews is that in order to be forgiven, you had to sacrifice and shed blood of an animal to receive forgiveness and to be right with God. And John was saying to both groups, look, you're both wrong, you're both right. Here to the Gnostics, you are living inconsistently because of your bad theology. Over here with the Orthodox, look, you think that you have to continue sacrificing animals and shedding blood through different avenues. The blood of Jesus was already shed for you. The cross says it is finished. Let's go back to the basics. And the basics is this, is that Jesus died for our sins. So therefore, you don't have to make sacrifices of these animals because that that's what was happening in order for them to believe that they're right with God. And John is saying, you guys are both right. You guys are both wrong. And secondly, in verse, verse 8 through 9, he, he gives a second set of clauses. He says, if we claim to be without sin, here's the consequence. We're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from our own, from our unrighteousness. 
So again, he's saying, look, we've overcomplicated our faith. Here's what we should be doing. A, understand that Jesus died on the cross for us. So that way you don't have to sacrifice any more animals. So over here that you can believe in the humanity and the divinity of Christ. That we can see Jesus' actual life and what he taught and how he lived. He was speaking to everybody at this moment. And he's saying, but when we mess up, again, we've overcomplicated our faith. But when we get back to the simplicity of the gospel, the gospel is this, that Jesus on the cross died for us because Jesus loved us so much. And so much so that when we mess up and confess our sins, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. Let's get back to the basics. That is what it means to walk in the light. And then the third set of clauses, John says this, if, again, all these if consequences, but instead. So he says, if we claim that we have not sinned, then we make Jesus, we make God out to be a liar. That's the consequence. Because we're all full of sin every single day of our lives. But we are so thankful of God's forgiveness. It says that then, then if we do that, the word is not in us. But, this is flowing into chapter 2, because the chapters and the verses came much later. This was a letter. So John says, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I love the way John unpacks things. I love the way John is speaking to the context, the Gnostics to the Orthodox, those that were overcomplicating the divinity, the humanity of Christ. And John is saying, let's get back to the basics. And the basics are these three things with these clauses. He says, A, in order to love God, love others, to live out this basic gospel, he says, number one, be consistent. Be consistent in your physical and spiritual life. And, and, and I would say this. This is so true for all of us. And, and if I can say this, if I can say if there's anything that hurts the witness of the church, if there's, any, um, there's many things that hurts the witness of the church, but if there's anything that hurts, I think, the most, our witness as Christians, as the church, it's our inconsistency of what we say, and how we live. We say we love God. We say we love others. But yet at the same time, we live a life where we don't love. We're hurtful. We live with greed. God says to live, to live generously, but, in, but instead we hoard. God says to live beautifully, and yet everything we do oftentimes demonstrates an ugliness or an evil in the world. We say that, you know, we, we accept everybody. We say that, you know, everyone's created in the image of God. We say that everyone's welcome to church. We say that God loves everybody, and yet we fail to do that same kind of love for others. Yet we have church become a very exclusionary place. We say that we love others, yet we say mean things and hurt others. We say that God forgives us, yet we don't forgive others. 
Again, God says for us to live generously. I'm not just talking about financially, but opening up your, your home for hospitality, and yet we close our doors. God says everyone's created in the image of God, yet we walk down the streets and we judge people for the way they look, the way they dress, the color of their skin, the, how much they, they make or not make, what kind of home or what kind of car they drive. John makes it very, very clear that at the, at the core of the gospel, at the essence of loving God and loving others is to be consistent. One person, one theologian says that this is the sign of integrity. What is integrity? He says integrity is being the same person when the door is open and when the door is shut. And that's a good question for us to ask. Are we the same person when the door is closed? Are we the same person when the door is open? Be consistent in our message of love. Number two, the way that we love others and love God is to confess. Now, we live in a world where confession is strange. And I would say for, for several reasons, but number one, of our own egos and our own pride. It's hard to confess our mistakes to one another. It's hard to confess our mistakes to God because of our own egos becoming a barrier to that. It's hard for us to confess because we live in a world where we're told that everything we do is okay, that as long as it feels right, then, then you're good. When the reality is that God has a way of life that God wants us to live. And there are moments, I don't know about you, but I do this, where we deviate from that. And if someone tells me that's okay because it feels good, or because that's my truth, or because that's what I want to do, that, that's not right. Confession is what God calls us to do and what brings us back when we make our mistakes. A call to confession is a fundamental element of following after Christ. When Gen- in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, they, they sin against God, they eat the apple, I, there's almost a humor to this where God is saying in the coolness of the day, God says, well, so they hid. They, they sinned, they ate the apple, and they hid. And God says almost humorously, where are you? As if God doesn't know where they are. I remember when I was playing uh, hide-and-seek with my younger sister. She's like seven years younger than me, and we'd play hide-and-seek. And, and one of the ways that I would kind of get her off my back is I would say, hey, let's play hide-and-seek. You hide, and then I'll count. And then the idea is, like, to never look. But the funny thing is, uh, you know, she was, like, maybe two or three years old. She would hide behind the curtain. And it was, like, this big, you know, thing that was sticking out. You can see her feet all the way from her knee down. And she's giggling. And she's really loud. And she thinks she's hiding from me. And I look at that. I remember that imagery. And I feel like that's what was happening in the garden when they ate that apple. And they're hiding from God. And God almost sarcastically says, where are you? As if God doesn't know. What I think is actually happening is that God is inviting them to confess. God is saying, here's your opportunity to live in this incredible garden that I've placed for you. And to live this beautiful life. And God says, where are you? Just come out. Just confess. It's okay. And for many of us, God is calling us just to confess. 
to name the ways that we have fallen short, to name out loud in our prayers to say, God, this is a way that I've fallen short of your glory. So John is saying it's easy. Well, it's not really easy, but here's three things I want you to do. Be consistent in your life. Live your life the way that you believe and that you speak. Live it. Number two, confess regularly. Know that you need a God, a Savior, because we're just imperfect people. And third, he says, live by the Spirit, the advocate, believing that Jesus is our atonement, it says. So really, if John had to sum it up, to live a life that loves God, love others, is to be consistent. It's to confess knowing that God will forgive us. And it's to live by the Holy Spirit, reminding us every single day that Jesus died for us. Imagine how life would look if we woke up every single day knowing that God is with us, that God died on the cross, sent his son Jesus down on the cross for us. And because of that, we are forgiven. Imagine waking up every day just saying, I have a God who loves and forgives me. And because of that, I can live differently in the world. I can live out what I actually believe. What kind of witness would we be as a church? What kind of witness would we be as individuals? And that is our calling here this morning as we learn from John. As I invite the worship team back up, as we enter into a moment of reflection, may we confess that sometimes we've just overcomplicated our faith, so much so that it's become a barrier to our fellowship with others. It's become a barrier to our fellowship with God. It's become a barrier to our witness to the world. And my calling, my encouragement, my charge to our church, to myself, is to live a life of consistency, to live a life of what God calls us to live, of love, of sacrifice, of generosity, of hospitality. It's to confess, and all confessing is, is acknowledging our own humanity and believing that all of us, we need a God, including ourselves. And to invite the Spirit into our lives, saying, Spirit, remind me every single day about the work of the cross and the impact it has on me. And and as I end, I want to do this. I want us to all stand together. We're going to sing a song together as a form of liturgy. But what I also want to do is we, as a community, want to enter into a practice even of confession. And and there's going to be a confession on the board that I want us to all pray out loud together as a church, collectively. So I'm going to start the prayer, and will you join me in this prayer? Here's the prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory